what do they say? Third time's a charm. More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachit, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. So if you haven't noticed, um, we've taken a little bit of a break from the podcast. So welcome to what is officially season two of Conscious Creators. And before today's episode, I actually have to read a disclaimer. And that is that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. Air Force, Navy, Department of Defense, or the government of the United States of America. So this episode is really present for our times. Um, As you're probably aware, we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, across the world. And when I was looking at everything that was happening, I wanted to learn how people who have been through crisis deal with it. So I actually reached out to two friends of mine, Julian and Mike. So Julian grew up in Georgia and became a bomber pilot after graduating from the United States Air Force Academy. He was selected as the 2018 Air Force Times Airman of the Year for his community and combat service. Julian is active in international nonprofit, public speaking, and was recently honored on the 2020 Forbes 30 Under 30 for law and policy. And Mike Brown is an entrepreneur, investor, and guerrilla philosopher. Prior to founding and operating an eight-figure oil and gas company, Mike flew FA-18 Super Hornets for the Navy and brings the fighter pilot spirit to entrepreneurship. So when he isn't dreaming up his next business or telling Navy stories, you can usually find him riding mountain bikes in the foothills of Golden, Colorado. And the reason I reached out to them was I wanted to understand how they were thinking about everything that was happening in the world. So this is a really special episode. It's something I personally needed for for everything that we are going through. So we talk about one, how to manage uh, yourself during what's happening in the world right now, how both of them are thinking about everything that's happening, self-compassion, dealing with grief, and so much more. So here's Julian and Mike, and enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome. So today we're doing a different kind of interview. We've got two of my friends, Mike and Julian, on, and sort of given the current climate, everything happening with COVID, I didn't really feel right, kind of like just doing the same stuff I was always doing. So I wanted to bring you guys on to talk about what's going on. So to start with, do you guys want to just sort of like start with quick, brief backgrounds? Um, Mike, do you want to go first? Yeah. So I, in a former life, uh, flew F-18s for the Navy uh, and then uh, got out in 2011, started an oil and gas company uh, that I exited last year. And uh, yeah, now I am uh, living in Golden, Colorado with uh, my two amazing kids and uh, figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. That's awesome. Uh, I'm Julian Gluck. I'm also known by the call sign Cosmo. I'm originally from LaGrange, Georgia, although I've lived all over. Currently a B-52 aircraft commander uh, for the Air Force and a flight commander at Barksdale Air Force Base near Shreveport, Louisiana. Also like to do a lot of nonprofit work on the side. And it's a pleasure to be here with you today. 
Awesome. Thank you guys for joining. So we're going to spend uh, a lot of time on the like sort of like the COVID uh, coronavirus situation, sort of how people can think about it. But I wanted to start with um, sort of the the volunteer and humanitarian background for like both of you. So Mike, um, we were hanging out, I think a couple of months ago, and you told a story about the boxing match. And I just remember listening to that and being like, I have to have Mike on in the podcast and just tell this story. So I know it's quite general, but you want to go into that? Yeah, well, I think to your point, charity work and nonprofits have always been a really important part of my life, especially as uh, we found that our company, you know, we set aside a percentage of proceeds for veteran focused charities and uh, have done a lot of work with that. And then uh, two years ago, uh, my dad was diagnosed with uh, stage four kidney cancer. And around the same time, I met a guy who runs a charity called Haymakers for Hope. And this is where he actually goes out and gets people to amateurs to, to do a boxing match, a public fight night to raise money for cancer. And I remember meeting him and being like, oh man, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. They don't have one in my city. And then a few months later, you know, I found out about my dad's diagnosis. And then he called me up and was like, hey, good news. We're bringing Haymakers to Denver. And I was like, oh <laughs> shit, this is the last thing I want to hear. But of course I signed up because that's what I do. And, uh, you know, kind of really adhering to that principle of do something that scares you. My last boxing experience had been at the Naval Academy in, in 2001, and it did not end in a pretty sight. Uh, basically, <laughs> I had a partner with my good buddy, and we had kind of made this agreement that we were going to get in the ring and make it really look good and, and get an A in the class. And uh, he was sick on the day of the final. So I get partnered up with this new guy. And I look over and this kid was someone that might have been considered a nerd at the Naval Academy. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a cakewalk. But I looked over and I saw this look in his eyes. He was clearly terrified and he was basically like losing it. He was like, oh, oh, and I was like, oh, this is, this is not good. And we got in the ring and, uh, you know, he was, he was pretty fearful. And I hit him one time and I just saw his eyes get really wide and then he just started swinging and never stopped for the entire rest of the match. And he beat my face in. So, uh, <laughs> that was my experience going into to the fight night. But, uh, you know, it was, it's an amazing organization. We raised a ton of money and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really awesome experience. So Haymakers for Hope, they've got events in New York, Boston, Denver, and, uh, in DC, I believe. So, uh, check them out and, uh, they're a great organization. I'm going to have to look out for that because I, I love boxing. I was a boxer at the Air Force Academy. Heavyweight is normally the joke I tell, but if it's over a podcast, no one can tell I'm, can tell I'm more humble in stature. So I was about 130 pounds in college. And I loved being a part of the boxing classes and all the unarmed combat courses. And I think there's so many lessons that you can apply from within the ring or on a wrestling match and you can take to the outside world. So I'll have to look out for the, the Haymakers for Hope see if I can find someone in the, the local area, a, a good cause for that. And then uh, Julian, for like you, obviously like, you've done a lot of humanitarian work and like, I actually spoke with our mutual friend Shreya right before this. And she wanted to like, she was like asking about the humanitarian work he does, but also in the context of his sort of childhood and how he was ra raised and where that motivation and drive comes from. Oh, that's, do all that. that's a great question. So my family has, always made it a point that because we have been blessed, had a very fortunate childhood to have great family members and live pretty comfortably middle class, that we should give back as much as we can. And it's part of that 
immigrant story from a century ago where we came to the United States with nothing. And with that, how can we take the, the blessings that we've had now and give it back to others? So my dad was always volunteering. He was working with the Civil Air Patrol and finding different opportunities with nonprofits, the same for my mom. So they imparted that lesson very early and it just became part of the, the normal path for me. When I got to college at the Air Force Academy, I was looking for more opportunities to give back. And the two primary organizations that I've done work with are the Knights of Columbus and the Civil Air Patrol. With the Knights of Columbus, it's been everything from helping the elderly, uh, leading the college program internationally when I was a, a junior and senior at the Air Force Academy for, as the chairman of the College Council Advisory Board uh, for this large, almost two million person organization. And then with the Civil Air Patrol, which is the official civilian auxiliary of the Air Force, I was a cadet and that's where I first learned to march and salute and all of the things that would lead to early leadership development and preparing for a more military lifestyle. As I became an adult, I decided to give back for a program that gave so much to me as a kid. And I do that through mentorship and instruction of middle school and high school students, up to college students, as well as peer mentorship and leadership for other adult volunteers and finding ways that we can teach aerospace and help people reach their dreams at an early stage, especially those from more impoverished backgrounds. With that, I, I like to jump into whatever charity stuff I can at the time, everything from uh, Habitat for Humanity, I've, I've done emceeing for gigs, uh, charity singing, rescue scuba dive training, uh, even dive site cleanup. So if, even if it's just walking a dog, if it's something I can give back, I enjoy it. You know, variety is the spice of life. So I like helping out wherever I can. Thank you both for sharing that. Um, we could spend so much sort of time on just that and, and your early backgrounds, but um wanted to switch to the, the COVID situation. Maybe we can come back to this. So I think it was yesterday or 24 hours ago where the Surgeon General said that this would be like a Pearl Harbor or, or 9-11. And I think like definitely like a few weeks ago, it didn't seem as serious. So for people kind of like listening, let's start with just kind of like setting the context of, of what this is and where we are. And I know both of you have like different ways of thinking about it. Like Mike, I know you like look at the asymmetric returns and risk and stuff. So do you just want to like start by sort of like how you've been thinking about it and how you're thinking about it now? Yeah, sure. I mean, the biggest thing that I like to, to talk about is looking at at risk and, and those asymmetric returns like you're talking about. So historically, humans are really bad at, at managing risk. And what happens is people form an opinion and then they look for data to back up their opinion. And that arises in a myriad of ways like confirmation bias. But it's really important actually to just look at what the data is telling us and then make decisions based on data, objective data sets. And when it comes to asymmetric returns, this is a topic I talk about a lot as an investor, uh, kind of the most obvious example of an asymmetric return is like an options trade, where you have a limited amount of capital at risk that can produce a 5 to 10x return. The same thing can be applied to situations like this in life. So as this thing started getting kicked off, uh, I mean, the, the path was really clear to me. You know, at first, we kind of started hearing about it in the media in February, and then kind of leading into March it started to look more dire. And it was really interesting to me. It seemed that almost immediately there were two camps of people. There were people saying, hey, this is going to be no big deal. This is all overblown media hype. And there were people saying, this is going to be the end of the world. This is going to be the Spanish flu from 1918, wipe out half the world's population. And what was really clear to me in that instance is that we actually just didn't have enough data to know what was going to happen. 
what we could do was look at the data and make some predictions or, or make some plausible outcomes. So to me, there was a perfect roadmap for what we could plausibly expect in the U.S., which was Italy. This is a very similar society to ours, and, and people are making arguments, oh, it's an older population and all this stuff. But really, as far as the, the way the society is structured compared to China, we look a lot more like Italy. And Italy was going into lockdown. They were having hospital overwhelm. We were seeing all of these things happening. And so for me, looking at that data, I would just say, hey, was or is this a plausible scenario in the U.S.? Now, that doesn't mean I'm attached to that, that I'm right, and this is going to happen in the U.S. I actually don't care if it happens or doesn't happen. What I'm saying is, is this plausible? If yes, now how, I, how can I direct my decisions in order to prepare for that eventuality? Hey, now we're starting to see a kind of a similar situation happening in New York as happened in Italy. The hospitals are starting to get overwhelmed. And it's almost shocking to me that there's articles coming out being like, hey, this is worse than we thought. And it's not just affecting old people. And you're starting to see this news. And, and I'm looking at this going, we had this roadmap a month ago. We, we could have predicted this almost exactly happening. And people were so attached to whatever outcome they decided was going to happen. Now they're acting like they're shocked. And it's like, man, we saw this on the horizon and we could have prepared. And we did to, to some extent, but I think our response was actually pretty slow compared to what it could have been. So the big thing I like to think about is what's the asymmetric return in this scenario? And it's in preparing. It, it costs me very little to go out and buy some groceries and start enacting a social distancing protocol. And by the way, that's that's personally for me. I have a tremendous position of privilege where I'm not in one of these essential professions and I have extra money and savings to be able to go out and buy groceries and prepare for my family. But there are a lot of people who are in that scenario and there's very little downside to enacting some of these procedures that are ultimately gonna save lives. And so to me, it's much worse to be prepared or it's, it's much better to be prepared for this scenario and have it be less impactful than we thought it might be than be caught out by not being prepared and then having this really terrible global pandemic, which some people, it seemed, were more concerned about being right on Facebook than they were about protecting their family. Mike is totally spot on there. And uh, it reminds me, I believe it was former Secretary Donald Rumsfeld who said there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns. When you first hear that quotation, you go, oh, this sounds a little hokey. But there, it actually brings to a very good point that there are the things that we can be aware of based on data, based on models, and the ones that we totally weren't prepared for. I think the CDC and, and the World Health Organization, other groups, have been preparing in different ways for a, a pandemic event like this. We have plenty of data from the plague of Justinian, the Black Death, and the more recent ones like the 1918 flu and Ebola, where we can say, okay, based on this type of virus, what is the particular epidemiological instance rate that could occur for our population? And we take that and we have to enact policy that's timely and effective. And of course, as we're look back at this in the debrief stage months or years from now, we'll find out how did we do at a national level or internationally and trying to tail the damages from this process and keep it as within our borders as we're fighting this virus. We have to look at definitely keeping our egos in check. Uh, you got to leave those at the door. It is about accomplishing the mission. And the mission here is saving others' lives, doing that through the, the policies that our, our governments or at the state level and communities, people are just socially deciding to do. That's what's important. It's, it's not about going on Facebook and going, ah, you know, my weird uncle uh, that posted this, you know, he's now saying that he was totally right. And with that, it, it's the planning piece that, that Mike talked about. I was very lucky that months and months before, I, I think I went to 
Whole Foods or another large store and bought a ton of toilet paper. It had absolutely nothing to do with this crisis. So I was just like, ah, I don't want to bring back all these toilet paper rolls to my house another time I was buying bulk. It happened to work this way. Probably the same for people just to use the ridiculous toilet paper analogy that have a bidet. Not everyone has that uh, luxury, have like a, a fancy European or Japanese toilet. And those that do have it probably don't have to worry as much about toilet paper. Now we have situations where those who are outside of essential career fields are struggling unsure paycheck to paycheck through this, or those that are elderly and vulnerable to the disease that may be immunocompromised, uh, how are they going to go about their lives? It's definitely going to be interesting to see how all this plays out and figuring out in a hot wash the things we could have done better and the things that we excelled at as a human race. Thank you for sharing that. And I think one point that both of you made is, is just sort of realizing that like even being able to go on Facebook and like post about it is in sense a privilege being able to social distance is a privilege, right? Like there's parts of the world where you can't even do that because everyone's packed. I think sort of like given that context, like where do you think we stand in the U.S. right now? And like, and where does this go given sort of like the current situation? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, look, uh, you know, to me, the way I look at this, this current situation is I actually can't predict how I think we're doing in the U.S. Because again, I don't think I have enough data to make that prediction. The one thing I would say is I still see a lot of people out there who probably aren't taking this as seriously as it needs to be. There's a lot of anecdotal data that I'm getting from doctor friends about um, hospital overwhelm and starting to see cases where there's a healthy 40-year-old that needs to be intubated because they're struggling breathing running out of respiratory machines. I mean, so we are starting to see some of these really scary effects that were happening in Italy. And it is still a plausible scenario where we could run out of ventilators and then they're going to have to start making decisions on who gets saved. That's a really terrifying scenario that I think there is a part of the population that's saying this is media fear-mongering. I don't think so. I think that that is a, is a very plausible outcome that we can actually come to expect here if we don't really adhere to these these procedures of social distancing. So there's definitely a population out there that's just saying, I think some of the biggest misinformation is that this only affects the old or immunocompromised population. That's simply not true. There are plenty of cases out there and there are plenty of data now showing that a very healthy 20 to 40 year old can be affected by this disease and 10% of those people are gonna end up in the hospital on a ventilator no matter how healthy they were going into it. So there is a lot of data out there showing that it, that it does not only affect immunocompromised people or people with underlying conditions. That misinformation or that myth that it, it's not affecting healthy populations probably contributes to worsening the situation by people saying, hey, this is a party, we're off work, let's go gather at the trailhead. Or, you know, in Colorado, it's a big, it's a big problem mm -hmm. seeing these people still gathering in parks or, or doing outdoor activities together and not observing the, the distance minimums. We're probably going to look back at that as, as a societal failure. But the other piece of this is, I don't think the government should be, have to be the one enforcing this thing. I mean, it, it's, it's really bizarre to me that uh, so many people seem to say, well, let me sit back and see what the government tells me to do here. We all have functioning intellects where we can look at the situation and go, wait a minute, what's best for my family? Well, I have a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. To me, the downside of staying at home, social distancing, working from home, stocking up on groceries and cooking from home, that's minimal compared to what might happen if I get this disease, I'm on a ventilator, I have to get a trach, I have permanent lung damage or worse, even death and leave fatherless children. Like I'll cook some, some beans at home in order to make sure that 
I'm not a part of this affected population. And, and it's, it's bizarre to me that more people aren't weighing the gravity of the situation. So, so I think that's where we're failing is that we're waiting to be told what we need to do rather than looking at the data and making an objective decision and going, hey, I don't have to be part of the problem here. Why don't I stay home? And it's definitely, definitely true. And as a private citizen, I would hope that everyone is acting in accordance with what is best for the community, for their families by doing their part because each of us as individuals has a way that we can defeat the virus whether that's through physical distancing and for the, the heroes that are in the medical community right now they're going into work every day and the public health specialists and their means to fight the virus head on or folks in essential industries that are helping transport supplies everyone can do their part those that are employed currently and those that unfortunately have been laid off or furloughed from work there's Plenty of misinformation out there, but there's also plenty of good information, and it's about filtering to find what is the most accurate data that we have. Not speaking as a virologist or as an epidemiologist, because I have no trained background in that, the best that I can hope for is that the, the information that I receive from the best sources is accurate, and I know that I'm going to try to do my part, whether that's following the regulations that I've got in my job with the government, or also the work that I can do as an individual. And that's not going for sushi when I really want to perhaps get a delicious sushi roll or some uh, nigiri somewhere. No, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to work on my own cooking skills and those can always improve and continue to go about my life in a way that will not have a negative impact, hopefully on someone else. And John, sort of like from your background, um, from the research that we did and said you said before with, with bullface and, um, I know you mentioned OODA loops. Kind of like if people are at home, and you can tell I don't know that, that much about those things, by the way I phrased that. How should people be, like when they're thinking, sitting at home, like thinking about this and, and sort of like preparing for this from, from like a crisis management perspective? Sure. I think that decision-making models can be useful. And of course, we don't want to be slaves to them and, and try to go through this very rigorous, regimented process all the time. Or like these models says to do X, I must now do X. But they do help in figuring out what implicit processes we have within us and then extrapolating information from that so that we can have a more rigorous or examined look at how we're making decisions. One that's talked about a lot in aviation and has become a, a bit of a cliche, but I still think proves some essential truth is the OODA loop, which was developed by Colonel John Boyd. He was a fighter pilot from the Korean and Vietnam War the Air Force, and he also came up with energy maneuverability theory and a lot of the work that led to the F-16 and the F-15. What he developed as a way to shift perspectives and paradigms and a environment that could be volatile and certain, complex or ambiguous, a, a VUCA environment, as a lot of people say in professional military education, is you have to observe, orient, decide, act. So for the observation portion, you are looking at taking in all of the circumstances around you. You're bringing in data, you're receiving information, whether that's collected from your senses, from information, from sources. In an aircraft, you might be looking outside the cockpit with your Mark I eyeball to see what you can pick up. You've got your EM data, your electromagnetic data put in. You've got communication from other players on the ground or in the air that you're bringing in to try to get a more complete picture of what's going on around you. And you've got the orientation, which is the focal point. It's now that you've got all this information coming in, you need to value it. You need to wait and filter it to be able to maneuver yourself to be in a position where you could eventually decide which course of action to take. And you are filtering this information through analysis, which consists of your traditions and habits, your previous experience, deduction, induction. You're coming up with 
uh, robust mental models and, and figuring new tactics to be able to assess this information, then now you have to decide. You have courses of action for what you're going to do. And depending on uh, how temporal this particular situation is, if I've only got X amount of time to do something, now I need to decide between course of action one, course of action two. You could do something like a weighted sum model if you've got a plenty of time, or maybe it's just a bit of a gut feeling based on what you observed and, and what you oriented. And then you act. You just do it. Uh, like Shia LaBeouf mm-hmm. would say, like, do it, or uh, your Nike slogan. And you execute on that course of action. And after it's over, you take in the feedback, your own feedback, feedback from others, and you go back to the beginning. And it's a, it's an iterative process. It's continuative. You know, so you want to make sure that when you're going into a situation that you're coming up with the best model to be able to interpret it and make the best decision with what you have available. I think that's crucial in the crisis. It's certainly what our government leaders and the medical professionals and public health and communities are doing right now with, with everything that you're taking in during this pandemic. What can I learn from it? What can we do? What should we do? And now we're going to do it and see how it affects us. I think uh, there's a couple of points that that I'd really like to uh, touch on around the OODA loop is number one, that it is an iterative process. And one of the things uh, that we say once we come up with a plan is don't fall in love with the plan. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a really important piece of this. I have uh, created kind of an entire life philosophy around not being attached to outcomes. I say a lot that one of my very favorite things is to have my mind changed, which is to say that if someone introduces new data that I've never considered before, I want to be completely open to the fact that, hey, I was doing the best that I could with the information I had at the time, but now given this new information, I can completely reverse my position without being attached to the old one, no matter how closely held that position was, right? And that's really important in an environment like this, is always keeping an open mind. And even after we decide to act, continuing to take in information so that we can make better decisions with whatever we have at the time, right? And that's that confirmation bias we're talking about is you don't just engage in this process once, make a plan and then blindly drive ahead. You know, I have probably the scaredest I ever was in an airplane was not in combat. It was actually during a super routine flight to Key West. Basically what happened was it was the end of the month and our squadron operations officer came to us and said, hey, we've done all our training for the month. We have these hours that we need to get rid of, which is the, speaks to the efficiency of the government model where if you don't burn your hours, then you don't get them next time. So he gave us a, a good deal, which means we had six jets full of only junior officers, meaning all of my peers, go down from Virginia Beach to Key West. And I was in charge of planning this mission. I went started doing the fuel, and I came back to my OPSO, and I said, hey, this isn't adding up. We actually don't have enough gas to go all the way to Key West and land with the reserves that we're supposed to have. He goes, oh, yeah, hey, we used to do this all the time. No big deal. All you do is you dial up the weather when you get to Miami. And as long as Key West is clear, then you can go ahead and pass Miami, land in Key West. You'll have plenty of gas. We used to do it all the time. And my little J.O. brain, because I was pretty junior in this quarter at the time, I was like, well, that doesn't sound right to me, but okay. Like this guy's been around a lot longer than I have. So we start flying down to Key West. There's, there's six of us. We're going to have a great time. We're going to get a, a black and tuna sandwich, which is they're, they're famous for. And uh, we dial up the weather at Miami. The weather's better than 5,005. That means that it's, it's clear and, and beautiful outside. And so we pass up Miami, start descending into Key West. And right about that time, we noticed some thunderheads start to build. And uh, for anyone who's been uh, down to the Florida Keys, you certainly know that that thunderstorms can come out of nowhere. And unfortunately, Key West is a pretty remote naval air station, and they didn't know that there was six jets coming in. So they only had one guy on duty. 
And the way we do approaches in the Navy is via ground controlled approach, meaning that a controller on the ground has to direct us in the land. Now he's got six jets, they're low on fuel. All of a sudden now we have this force gump, sideways rain, squall, crazy tropical storm rolling in. We're all super low on fuel. And one guy is trying to direct us all on the ground. So we're, we're burning a bunch of gas flying in a huge box pattern lining up for this approach. And the weather's just getting worse and worse and worse. We don't have enough gas to get from Key West back to Miami, which is the nearest diverge. So that means we have to land at Key West. Basically what happens is, I think I was fourth in line. We came through, we broke out. You're supposed to make a decision at 200 feet, whether you can land or whether you need to fly back in the clouds and try again. Well, we had to land. So we broke out at like 80 feet and finally spotted the runway. And it was back into our left. We actually had to circle around underneath the clouds. We flew underneath the tower. And right as we came around to land again, another jet broke out. We almost had a midair with them. We landed way below the minimums for fuel. Like I said, hands down, the most terrified I've ever been in an airplane. We, we probably had about 45 seconds to a minute left of gas before we would have had to eject into shark-filled Cuban waters. But the problem is, in this instance, we did exactly what I, what I just said not to. We fell in love with the plan, <laughs> which is there was various points along this decision matrix where I could have said, hey, wait a minute, something in my gut, you know, my hair standing up on the back of my neck, this doesn't feel like a great decision. Starting with the time that my senior officer told me that this was something they used to do when the numbers weren't adding up, all the way to as we were still descending into Key West, seeing thunderheads build up. At that point, we still could have turned around. So there's all kinds of different decision points where you can, you can still have the option to scrap the plan that you have and come up with a new one, which would have been a much better option in this case. The biggest thing in aviation is you always want to leave yourself an out. Basically, you see anytime that there's a mishap, someone did not leave themselves a way out of the situation. And now we're forced into a decision point where it was either one bad choice or another bad choice. And there was no way to bail on what they had been doing. And so the way to think about that in this current context is always leave yourself an out. So in that case, it might be groceries. Hey, I've got a bunch of groceries for 30 days, right? So when it comes down to it, at the end of those 30 days, I might not be eating extravagantly. It may be a chicken breast and a can of beans, but I've still got an option, right? If we completely mm -hmm. shut down. Is that a worst case scenario? Yeah, probably so. And, and that's probably not going to come to pass, but I'm prepared for it in case that it does. I've always left myself an option. And that's kind of the way to think about this coming situation, especially with the economic crisis that we're facing. Because once we get past the health crisis, which we will eventually get past that, there's still going to be a massive economic crisis that we're going to have to deal with. And there's going to be a lot of decisions that people make that really affect what their outcome is going to be in the face of those decisions. Sure. And there's a ton you can take from aviation, especially in the military context, applying it to this, especially for emergency procedures, like in pilot training or navigator training, people go through stand-ups where you go in front of your your peers, your fellow students, and they will give you an emergency situation. Perhaps you've lost an engine, perhaps you're going approaching a thunderstorm, you're within 10 miles of it. What do you do now? And the first thing you do is you go through a, a mantra, like a koan of maintaining aircraft control, analyze the situation, take proper action, and land as soon as conditions permit. So the first thing is you aviate, then you navigate, and then you communicate about what happened. So for aviate, the first thing is when you're in the air, when you're in a jet, you need to stay in the air as long as possible. You want to go take that jet, make sure you're going, staying at your altitude or not careening into anyone else. And so you can get the jet back safely. After you aviate, you navigate, you want to go to whichever airfield you 
need to land that. In this case, it was Key West. Perhaps if, if they had used the alternate of Miami, then going back to Miami if you're closer there. And then when you communicate, you're letting other people know, hey, I've got an emergency or I need this amount of help. I need someone, to, an on-wing to come on and to take a look at my aircraft, examine our engine. Is there, does it look like it's fought it out? Is it on fire or fuego? Uh, since we normally don't say fire in the jet. And with that, you can look at these emergency procedures and also go, okay, we, we have bold face. This is something that you automatically are prepped to do that you have memorized for certain situations. I will automatically do this. So for ejection, the B-52, it's arming levers, rotate, trigger, squeeze. I know that if I have to eject out of the airplane, pop out the top, and then eventually be under canopy, this is the motions that the motions I'm going to go through to get out of the aircraft as fast as possible. You can also look at all these for the pandemic or any crisis. You need to make sure that you're safe, your loved ones are safe. You need to take a look at what's going on around you. Take the actions that are necessary, whether that's putting on a mask, not going out, employing physical distancing or social distancing measures, and then get back home as safely as possible. And these are some things I've thought about in crises that I have been witness to or, or, or been a part of. And as a first responder, having gone through emergency first responder training with uh, Patty as a rescue scuba diver, I've seen times where you're out and about, maybe there's a car accident. And I've, I've got one in East Texas that particularly comes to mind where you're going through these models that I've previously mentioned, mm -hmm. the kind as an aviator going through emergency procedures and also that John Boyd OODA loop for how am I going to take a look at this situation and try to bring about the best possible outcome. One thing I'd like to add on that kind of aviate, navigate, communicate mantra that, that you were talking about is that that's actually a task prioritization. So it's, it's looking at all the different things that you can do and then figuring out which ones are the most important and what order to do things. So another thing that we say in aviation is no fast hands in the cockpit. And I, I think that's really important in this context, which is what people don't often realize is that even in an emergency, you have more time than you think. And what happens a lot of times is in an emergency, we get some indications and then our primal brains start to panic and we start trying to act as quickly as we, as we possibly can to fight that emergency. And then in some cases, exacerbate the emergency and make it worse. So there's, there's always stories in aviation about people getting a left engine fire and then panicking and shutting down the right engine. So that's mm -hmm. where this no fast hands in the concept comes from is, hey, even if you're in an emergency situation, take an extra five seconds Make sure that you're confirming, hey, I've got a right engine fire and I'm going to shut down the right engine, right? So moving methodically, slowly, and, and concisely in order to actually combat the situation that you have and not make it worse. So in contrast to that, that Key West story where there was a comedy of errors that led to this, this pretty dire situation, something that could have been really dire, me and my, my good buddy, Pappy, Dave Porter, the love that he's getting a shout out on the show. We launched off the front end of the aircraft carrier and uh, had an electronic fire in the cockpit and our cockpit filled with smoke. And this is the absolute worst time to get this. You know, you're, you're going from zero to 185 knots and in a couple hundred feet in, in under a second. And all of a sudden your cockpit is filled with smoke. You can't see, you have no horizon. And there are a lot of opportunities to panic in that situation. But our training kicked in and we really adhered to aviate, navigate, communicate, and no fast hands in the cockpit. We were able to handle this emergency. So the first thing that Pappy did was make sure that we're level, make sure that we're flying away from the ground. Then we started executing the, the bold face procedures uh, like Julian talked about. We dumped the ECS and the canopy and, and got the smoke clear. 
and then started coming around to land and communicate with the ship, hey, we have an emergency, we need you to clear the other aircraft out of the area and allow us to land. And we got around and landed within like two minutes of having this emergency, but it was because everyone kept a level head, had training to fall back on, and, and we assessed the situation and dealt with it in a methodical manner rather than allowing panic to get the best of us. And so I think that can really be a great lesson in this pandemic is, hey, this is like, uh, in, basically it's in Austin Powers when, when, the, when the car's coming at him, he's like, ah, <laughs> ah, we have plenty of time. Nothing's mm-hmm. going to come so fast right now that we're overwhelmed by it, right? We can see the looming economic crisis coming here. Mm-hmm. We can watch every day as cases are building of COVID. So we, we have plenty of time to make good decisions and assess the data. So the worst thing people can do right now is, is start panicking and making bad decisions and exacerbate the situation. Oh, that that's yeah. awesome. And I, I love the scenario about the, the person biting off on the wrong engine and, and closing the throttle on that. That's a pretty funny one, the B-52, because we've got eight engines. So we're always like, okay, where is this particular uh, engine fuego occurring? All right, it's on engine seven. Confirm this is seven. One, two, three, one, two, three. Okay, that is number seven. Now we're going to uh, pull the throttle back and close it and shut down the engine and then do the fire shut off switch. So that, that's true. And, and it's not biting off on red herrings. And you can get functionally fixated on something in the cockpit, something outside of the cockpit, and that could potentially lead to exacerbation or the demise of the crew if you bite off on the wrong thing. And also plenty of time. Very few things are ones where you're going to really have to execute absolutely immediately with virtually no time or data. I just saw the Disney Pixar movie Onward yesterday. Uh, One of my buddies from uh, my combat crew at uh, Al Udeed for Operation Inherent Resolve was like, hey, I got this extra rental. You want to do it? Because if not, it's going to be wasted. I was like, absolutely. And I I watched Onward. It was was really funny and and charming. There's a part in there where they talk about the gelatinous cube. And it's just super slow moving. And it's the same as the awesome power scene. You know, you're in a dungeon. There's a giant, slowly moving cube that's going to disintegrate your body or come around you like an amoeba. Instead of just being paralyzed in fear, you go, mm-hmm. what can I do right now? And in aviation, we have checklists. There are procedures in place for you to go about making the right decision. And that's the same thing we can do here. Yeah, and I think that's so important because you're seeing sort of like people going to the stores and panic buying because they don't know what to do. What are um, other sort of like principles and tools? I know, Mike, you've mentioned sort of like meditation and mindset and, and Julian, you talked about Masashi and, and the stuff that you're doing with leadership with high schools. So like what are other principles and tools from, from both of you that people should be considering as like things progress? Like maybe it gets worse, maybe it doesn't, but just sort of like to keep yourself sane. And, and this is as much for me as, as for people listening. Yeah, sure. I mean, so meditation for me has really been a cornerstone that I've learned since the military of the way I've designed my life. And the illusion of control that humans have is is staggering. We really can control very little, but the one thing that we can always control is the quality of our own mind and the nature of our own consciousness and being an observer of the way things appear in consciousness. So I think one of the biggest myths about meditation is that it's about sitting on a cushion for 45 minutes and completely clearing your mind. That's kind of the perception. And and I have people tell me all the time, oh, I I can't meditate. I start thinking immediately and it's just just too much. I have too many thoughts racing in my head and I I don't like meditation. And it's a myth that meditation is actually the absence of thought. What happens is we can actually reliably know that during meditation, we are going to think. We can actually expect that as we're trying to pay attention to the breath, thoughts are going to start arising. And meditation is actually the practice of just paying attention to those thoughts 
and watching them arise and not being a slave to those thoughts. So meditation doesn't have to be sitting still for 45 minutes. It can be taking a few centering breaths and observing what's happening, locating emotions in the body, locating feelings as they're arising and observing them rather than, than acting on them. And so in this case, you know, now that we've kind of are, are almost a month into this distancing thing, a lot of people are staying at home. Now I'm starting to see the tide kind of turn from this, hey, everybody, we're in this together. Let's, let's fight the disease and stay home. And now we're starting to see people kind of go, oh my God, I'm going crazy. Either I can't stand the partner that I've, that I've isolated with, or I'm bored and I can't watch Netflix anymore. Meditation gives us a really great tool to combat boredom, which is if you can be an observer of your own consciousness, there's really no way you can ever be bored. We've become really great at distracting ourselves in society, right? We have this device in our pocket 24 hours a day that anytime we start to get bored, we can go start scrolling on Facebook or, or start texting friends or, or doing any of the various other endless activities that take up our time and space. And people get really nervous about having to sit with themselves and see what arises because a lot of people don't know how to deal with that. Meditation gives us a really great tool to be still, see what arises, and then start processing some of those feelings, right? So in this crisis situation, you see a lot of different reactions. You know, one of them is someone kind of in denial going, no, I'm great. This is great. Everything's great. I'm prepared. I'm having the best time. I'm not scared at all. That's not honoring the fact that, hey, there's some really serious shit happening out there. I have been scared during this situation at various times. When I'm, when I'm reading really scary anecdotes of people my age dying in the hospital, that scares me. That's an emotion that comes up. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to react out of fear and go panic by. It means that I need to pay attention to that emotion and go, okay, yeah, this is a potentially scary scenario and it's okay to be afraid. And now by observing that, letting it dissipate, it's not running my, my subconscious. It's actually appearing in my consciousness and I'm honoring that emotion and allowing it not to dictate my action, right? So it's really important, I think, mindset-wise that in this time, first of all, we honor the emotions that come up because it's going to be a sine wave of emotion. Some days we're going to feel good. Some days it's going to get scary. And you have to honor that those times when it gets scary. Anger is another emotion that, that we tend not to want to let out or honor because no one wants to be seen as angry or no one, you know, we're very afraid to show our angry side because it's not socially acceptable. But there are times when anger may come up. Like I'm angry that I can't leave my house. And again, mm -hmm. honoring those emotions, checking in, where are those arising in the body? that allows us to actually not be a slave to these things. And for instance, then take our anger out on our partner who's stuck here with us. If you can honor those emotions, then now we can, we can act in a better manner for, for not only ourselves, but everyone around us, you know, our, our spouses, our kids, whoever we're stuck in this thing with. So meditation is a huge, huge piece of doing that. And for anybody that is interested in getting on the road of meditation, Sam Harris's waking up app to me is just hands down one of the best tools out there. He's got a 50-day course of 10-minute meditations that, that ask really deep questions and, and help people learn the process of meditation, not just how to be still. There's another great company, iAwake, that has some binaural technology that can actually use brainwave entrainment to help you go deeper in meditation. So those are two recommendations, but starting with Sam Harris's app to me is, is a really great way. And what better time to start a meditation practice than when you're stuck at home? Right now, anybody who has the excuse of like, I don't have enough time, that's no longer a valid excuse, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't come out of this mandatory quarantine with, with a new habit or 
or some better processes in your life, you know, you have wasted time. If you just binge watch Netflix the whole entire time without trying to do anything, that's a missed opportunity. So that's a, that's my plug for meditation. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that we can be doing right now to improve our situation. I think that's great on meditation. I, I wish I had done more of it in the past and I'm trying to incorporate more meditation and prayer into my practices. Had a great experience when I was in Fukuoka, Japan with the language enabled airman program for the Air Force a while back where we, if you have certain language capabilities, the Air Force will send you for let's say 30 days to re-up on your language training to make sure that you can use in the future. And for Japanese, they sent me to Japan and we went to a Zen Buddhist temple and practiced Zazen there for part of the day where I sat in a seated position. I was given a koan or mantra to think about and a monk came up behind me with a giant bow staff and just whacked me in the back. I'm supposed to focus on the task at hand and keep my mind focused on that as I've got this searing pain. I'm just trying to be hardcore like, oh yeah, those boxers is nothing. It's totally cool. And for the next four days, I have this just bow staff imprint on my back. Hopefully, you don't have to do any of that, Mike, with your meditation at home. You don't have the kids going up and you behind with the nerf, or nerf guns or anything. That's, the advanced, med- that's the advanced course. That's the advanced <laughs> course, exactly. Level two, though. Hey, kids, come over here. Here's the staff. But the meditation is great. And I think philosophy and having more perspectives where you're able to analyze a situation is super useful. One of my big focuses for 2020 was to increase more regimentation in my life and be more productive. Whatever idle time, maybe I was watching something funny on YouTube. Try to reduce a little bit of that and devote more time to personal development, professional development, taking care of others. So one of the things I started in 2020 from a gift from my my friend uh, Jeff was reading a copy of The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. It's just a devotional that Mm -hmm. takes works from Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus, uh, Xenocidium, and you get these kind of third century BCE philosophers, and they give you modern adaptations for that. Meditations by Marcus Aurelius is one of my favorite works, and there's incredible stuff that this emperor from 2,000 plus years ago had about uh, how the obstacle is the way. When you are faced with something like this pandemic, uh, you you have to go through it, and you've got Amor Fati, the love of one's fate. Everything that happens, happens, whether it's good or bad. So what you have to do is take it as part of your story and learn from it. And You can't be stuck in the past and be like, oh, woe is me. Why did this happen? It already did happen. Now, what can you take from it? So it's, it's not seeking for things to happen in a different way. It's just what happened, happened, and you have to be able to find some sort of a contentment in that as you take it forward. And you mentioned uh, Miyamoto Musashi. He's one of my other favorite mm-hmm. philosophers. He wrote Gorin no Sho, or the Book of Five Rings. He was a, a Japanese ronin, a samurai without a master, and he basically went all around Japan challenging people to duels, sometimes to death. With One of my favorite stories I like to tell, but I won't bore your audience, is about what may be the greatest fight in world history between two men. It was Miyoto Musashi and Sasaki Kojiro on the island of Ganryujima between Honshu and uh, Kyushu. And it was just this amazing battle. We can do that another time on the podcast. But Miyamoto Musashi, he's got great stuff in the Book of Five Rings, becoming acquainted with every art that's learning all these different perspectives. Take what you can from philosophy, from science, from your work experience, your personal experience, and adopt that and adapt it to different situations. Seeing things from other vantage points, there's, there's plenty of, of very useful stuff in there. So I, I try to take what I can from, from philosophy and theology and see how I can apply it in, in unique situations. Uh, this past summer, 
I went horseback riding in the Mongolian steppe with my father, younger brother, and some nomads uh, that my, my dad had set up. So my brother just graduated from the Air Force Academy and of course started pilot training. He wanted to go ride horses in Mongolia. So we're out there for seven days, middle of the steppe, essentially no technology. There's no internet, phone service. We did have our phones to be able to listen to music or take pictures mostly while we were out there. We had solar panels on the sides of the horses, the little ones that we bought off Amazon that we're, we're strapping here, trying to get as much light as we can to just be able to take beautiful photos of the scenery. While I was out there, I was like, hey, I can certainly use this time to meditate. I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in the saddle, just feeling the pain through my my back as I'm hanging out with these nomads and my family who are, for the most part, real cowboys, like rodeo team in college and high school. And I'm, I'm over here as this very, very junior equestrian with limited experience, just trying to, once again, look hardcore that, you know, from hours and hours in the saddle. While I was there, I focused on my past, my present, my future. What can I take from situations? Because when you're out there in the wilderness, now you have a moment of peace. Mm-hmm. I also listened to an awesome philosophy lecture series on Audible from the great courses on uh, the Eastern intellectual tradition. I covered the Brahmin philosophers all the way up to the modern era. One of my favorites being Nagarjuna, who is this Buddhist monk from around 200 CE. And he talks about the, the, his tetralemma, mutually exclusive logical endings to situations, things that exist, they don't exist, they both exist and do not exist, and they neither exist nor do not exist. And these are things that seem really far out there. How can I apply this in my life? And it became a running joke with my family members. We're, we're trying to look at the Garzina's tetralemma in all these different situations. I mean, we're really, really bored out there sometimes <laughs> when you're just you know, on the side of a mountain getting rained on. But there are ways that you can take all of these different experiences you've had mm-hmm. and apply it. And boredom for me doesn't really exist. There's always a thousand projects to do. And I feel a little guilty when I'm not working on something, either to, to develop, to become a better leader, or to, to help others out. But just like Mike said, meditation, that is crucial. And that's where you're going to come up with a lot of mental breakthroughs to become a better person. Yeah, and those are amazing tools, like, especially because like, like, people are at home. I'm pretty sure I think like waking up, they made it free, I think either for a lot, everyone or for medical workers during these times. So I think, yeah, it's, it, it's so important for people to just take advantage of that. What are like other things that, and I know Mike, you talk, touched a little bit on it, like one, like things people should be doing or could be doing, and also like things people shouldn't be doing. We, I know you touched on the social media thing a little bit, but if you want to expand on that. Yeah. So one, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed kind of come up in this crisis is this attitude on social media that can appear differently, I think, than the, the poster intends, which is, and there's been a ton of, of this video from the virus talking to the human race. There's, there's all kinds of stuff out there, but basically it's this idea that this is just what the human race needed, and this is a welcome reset, and that is a super privileged position to take, right? So yes, should we be looking for the silver lining? Should we, those of us in a position of privilege, look at this as an opportunity to improve ourselves? Absolutely. Those are critical things to do during this time. But recognize that you're, if you're in a position to improve yourself and meditate for 30 days, you're in a tremendously privileged position, right? If, if you mm-hmm. have the ability to buy groceries and you work from home and you can do meetings via Zoom calls, that is a position of privilege. And so if you're going to post about that on social media, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with telling people a positive attitude and look for the silver lining, but have compassion for the gym owner 
for the restaurant owner who's losing everything, for the, the service industry workers who don't know how they're going to make their next rent and bills because they don't have a paycheck anymore. There is a tremendous amount of suffering happening because of this disease. And to say, I welcome this disease as a, as a great chance for human reset and look at how great the environment's doing. That is just a super callous attitude to put out there for people who may be losing loved ones in the hospital right now or losing their, their lifelong dream of their gym. Like, so you have to balance those two things, balance the silver lining and positivity with some compassion and with attitude of remembering that, yeah, just because you can improve your life doesn't mean that everybody can do that. And, and you have to have compassion. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think for those that work for the government or in essential industries, there certainly is a privilege in being able to have a steady income source to have the protections through insurance or savings or anything else to be able to continue to live a life with, without a lot of that heartache that people that are currently suffering so much, whether from personal tragedies or family members, friends that have passed away from the illness or been affected by it, or because they're, they're out of work and they don't have the money to be able to, or the time to do the things that they would normally do or want to do. For those that do have that time, things that we can do during this, certainly trying to develop, learn skills, those are crucial. And I, I try to look at what my weaknesses are. I think a, a great benefit in the flying community is in the debrief process and, and everyone else in military aviation, they're brutally honest. And I have mm -hmm. certainly had humbling moments. Pilot training for me was one massive humbling experience of finding out things that I, I was not good at, that I was average at best, and trying to figure out ways to improve. And it, it's still like that in, in the community. And I'm very grateful for having incredible instructors and weapons school graduates, commanders that will push me to be a, a better aviator and a better tactician, because there's always room to grow in a thousand different ways. You can also apply that in your, your normal life. I found that when I was probably about four or five years ago in a position where if a family member or a loved one or someone on the street had been in an accident or was hurt, there was really nothing I knew how to do for that. I felt like I would be powerless and would feel some guilt in not being able to take part in helping someone in need. So I said, okay, here's something that I know very little about. I will try to put a little bit of time towards that. So I've signed up to be a self-aid buddy care instructor. And then through survival school, I tried to learn as much as I could about first response. I did the rescue scuba diver thing in the hopes that a situation like this would, would never happen. But if it did, I would somewhat be prepared. Mm -hmm. And it was last year, about this time, where a situation finally did occur after all of these, where I was driving from Dallas back to Shreveport. I had dinner reservations. And on the highway, I see a car flipped over in a crowd of people. And I'm, about, I'm going about 60, 70 miles an hour at this point, maybe higher because it's Texas and the speed limit's a little bit greater there. I'm going, I see this. I've got dinner plans. I'm already dressed up. I'm observing what's going on. I don't see any ambulances. I go, all right, I need to do something about this. So I hit the brakes as much as I can. I turn the car over into the you know, off, off lane there, park it, and sprint out. Probably should have grabbed some supplies before I started sprinting from the back of the car, but I'm just operating on adrenaline. So I full sprint towards this vehicle, and I'm looking around at the people, and I, this is the orientation part. I see all these people out there. There's a woman on the ground. There's another crowd a little bit apart. And there's two people next to the woman on the ground, about 20 people standing around. And the guy looks like he's giving CPR. There's no one in charge of the situation. So I go, hey, who is in charge here? And no one says anything. It's just a big gaggle of people. I go, who here is first responder trained? And the guy who's next to the, the lady who's on the ground says, I'm a former EMT. 
and the lady that's assisting him and helping the woman on the ground says, I'm CPR trained. And I go, cool, you guys are in charge of her. Is there any other victims here? And they go, hey, there's, there's three kids, an infant, a two-year-old, a four-year-old that were in this accident. They take me to them. We go over there. Uh, the kids each have like a mom figure that was someone driving by that's assessing them, is taking care of them. So I go by, just use the most rudimentary training that I have to just talk to the kids, see what's going on. I'm picking little bits from my kind of junior counselor experience from the academy, from a, a personal ethics and education representative program. I'm pulling from the rescue diver course and everything else, seeing what's if there's any lacerations with the children, perhaps if there's internal bleeding, how are they feeling, how there's their mental state, are they in shock? trying to assess as much as possible and help those that are in the, the best position to do something about it. And I, I mean this not to pat myself on the back because there were a hundred different ways when I looked back and debriefed that I would have done it differently. And I know that if I had been in a different position there, different individuals had not been there like that EMT, the way I look back on this would be a lot different. The three children from that accident, uh, the ones that I focused on, they all survived. They had minor injuries, which is a blessing. They made it to the hospital, had those fixed and came out of it, I guess, as best they could. The woman, the mom in this situation who was ejected from the vehicle. She wasn't wearing her seatbelt. She did not make it. And the the prior EMT who was giving her mouth-to-mouth um, resuscitation for probably was 20, 30 minutes before the cops got to this remote location and the, the paramedics, uh, he did everything he could. And I knew if I was in that position, he wasn't there and I was working on her, that I would feel some measure of guilt. Like, I should have trained harder. There's more I could have done in this case. I should have learned more. I, I should have been there earlier. There's a hundred different things when we're looking at a crisis where you can do your part. But the best thing that you can do right now is trying to prepare. It's mm-hmm. figuring out what can I do as an individual to help this situation. And it doesn't need to be something with incredible valor like Medal of Honor recipients or the firemen at 9-11. It can just be right now the best thing that I can do to prepare for this is to make sure that my elderly relatives are isolated, that I'm bringing them groceries, that I'm doing my part to not take on the disease or spread it. Sort of like in those situations where like you feel like you could have done more or whatever, how do you guys like balance going back and, and make sort of like reevaluating things and also having compassion for yourself in the situation? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great topic because there are kind of two competing philosophies that might at, at first seem incompatible, but they're actually really necessary to be integrated. So in the Navy, the debrief process is something in, in the Air Force as well, though you guys probably aren't as good. <laughs> the debrief process is something that's really important. We say criticism keeps us alive. What that means is, is that after every flight, no matter how good the flight is or how bad the flight is, I'm going to go spend a bunch of time looking at all the things that I could have improved. Notice I don't say the things we did right. You're just expected to do those things right. We don't give even, even a nod to the, to the things we did right. We look at all of the things that could be improved on. And trust me, there's no such thing as a perfect flight. Every time you come back, no matter how well it went, there's plenty of things that you can look at. And it actually becomes almost a game to try and call yourself out on as many different things that you could have done better, showing that, hey, I'm always willing to be learning here. And I'm always going to come with this humble approach. And it's really funny that people say fighter pilots have big egos because we might have a big ego at a party, but inside the squadron spaces, like Julian said at the very beginning of this call, you leave the ego at the door and you actually come with this humble attitude of, of where can I always be improving because we know that we can always be improving, right? And that's mm-hmm. a very central piece. And so if someone thinks they've already figured it all out or is above reproach, that's actually where people run into problems in aviation is, is 
you know, not having a humble attitude. So to your question, where does self-compassion come in on that? Well, if you're going to welcome criticism, it's actually, you have to be wildly compassionate with yourself. And this is actually not something we're taught in the military. And uh, a good friend of mine, Jeff Bandman, running the Operational Mindset Foundation, the basis of his work is actually teaching military and first responders mindfulness, self-compassion, because we're taught to be very, very hard on ourselves. And then when we're hard on ourselves in an environment where everyone else is hard on us, that's really a recipe for disaster. So if you're going to invite criticism, you have to be wildly self-compassionate and not beat yourself up for mistakes that you made rather than just looking at where you can improve. So in this situation too, self-compassion is a huge piece of getting through this crisis. You know, a lot of our friends are entrepreneurs. A lot of the, the people listening to this show, Satchit, you know, are going to be entrepreneurs who, who might be struggling business-wise. I heard my friend Garrett Gunderson say recently, your net worth is not your self-worth. And that is a huge thing to think about right now. This was a tragic black swan event that caused a lot of things out of our control to affect our businesses. And so in the same way that businesses are built, not just by the individual, but all of the factors, and there's a lot of luck in building a business, there's also a lot of bad luck when things don't go so well. And allowing the fact that, hey, if you're struggling right now, it's not your fault necessarily. Mm -hmm. Are there better decisions that you could have made along the way? Could you have had bigger cash reserves? You know, could you have a better contingency plan? Sure, but spending time beating yourself up is not the thing to do right now. It's not the thing to do for your employees. It's not the thing to do for your family. Having that self-compassion going, hey, this is a really difficult situation. Honor the fact that this is tough times. And, and this is an event that we are going to remember for the rest of our lives, akin to 9-11. People mm -hmm. are going to remember this as a defining moment. Our grandkids are going to be pissed that we won't shut the hell up about this COVID epi epidemic of 2020, because this is, this is where we have character-defining moments. And self-compassion is one that is massive. It isn't talked about enough that people need to realize, hey, a lot of the awful things happening out there aren't our fault, and we can be compassionate with ourselves around that and still make good decisions and learn from our mistakes. Oh, that, that, that's a phenomenal point on self-compassion. That, that's definitely something I struggle with. I'm by far my own harshest critic. And it's a lot easier for me to take mistakes that others have made, maybe things against me and, and dismiss that. It's like, oh, there's a thousand different reasons for that. But if it's something that I had done wrong or that I could have done better, and especially on my flights uh, as instructors, or, or I will point out, I, I could have developed this tactic better in mission planning. I will focus on that and go, ah, oh, gosh, I, I should have done that here. I should have done that there. The important part is to focus on root causes then have mm -hmm. instructional fixes for how we can ameliorate or prevent that in the future with a, with a better solution. With the example I gave from the, the accident in East Texas, I ended up running to my car three times, wasting time that I could have spent with the kids or assessing the situation for the mom. Not, not that I had the experience that was greater than that paramedic by any stretch. But I kept running back because, first of all, I, I thought I had a great survival kit in the back of my car. It was in my motorcycle instead. Then I went, okay, there's uh, one of the girls is bleeding. What do I have in my car? I run back. And I got an American flag beach towel that was in the back of the car and, and ran back with that. So contributing factors there and the root cause for a lot of this could have just been, you know, I could have been more prepared if I had a survival kit with everything from a nasopharyngeal tube in there, an Israeli bandage, a tourniquet, whatever else is necessary. And 
using that debrief lens, taking in the criticism and not letting it emotionally affect us as much as we can. We're still human. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're going to feel bad when people say, oh, you sucked on this sortie or this flight. You know, you could have done this better. Your mission planning was garbage. What's taking that and receiving it, trying to be grateful for the criticism that you received and looking at it as constructively as possible. And I, I certainly haven't always been the best at that. You know, sometimes you get sad or you get angry when you're receiving feedback from an instructor or a loved one. But that's important to be able to grow and just to look at, hey, I've made mistakes. I will always make mistakes on flights. I will always make mistakes in life with my dealings with others. But trying to improve, seeing what the root cause of your mistake was and fixing that in the future. Yeah. So first of all, Julian, thank you for sharing that story. And yeah, um, I think even in the conversations I've had with like friends or entrepreneurs or like people who are trying to like make sure their parents stay home and, and maybe they aren't, I think that this is so important. So we're like segueing from this and, and we don't try to ask this question not in a morbid, morbid way, but um, like I've had conversations with friends, for example, where a friend called me yesterday and um, her family is in South America and like their uh, people in her family are half COVID or are sick, right? And I think sort of you might, Mike, you mentioned 9-11. I think there've been 9,000 plus deaths in the US, I think right now or, or something along those lines. There's go, there are going to be a lot of deaths. And like, I think like on a global level, like people are going to experience grief and, and sort of relating to your guys's combat experience like there's casualties so so what are like i guess like ways people can think about or tools or resources given the, the global nature of, of what's going to happen or what is already happening yeah anytime in the face of tragedy we have a few different options and unfortunately historically the military has actually actually not been great at helping people with and as a society as a whole we don't deal with grief very well the kind of conventional wisdom is suck it up and, and present your, put your best face forward and compartmentalize is something that we really do a lot in the Navy. Now, there is a reason for compartmentalization. You know, if you're in combat and there are tragic things happening, compartmentalization is very important in order to continue to accomplish the mission. But this is where folks like Jeff and the Operational Mindset Foundation come in is then once you're out of a dire situation, it is actually really important to start honoring those feelings. And I think a lot of the reasons that we see so much instance of PTSD in our, in our country is because we are super bad at going back and honoring the feelings. We just try to move on as quickly as possible or never pay honor to how these things can affect us. And a lot of times we look at things as the trauma Olympics. And what I mean by that is we tend to have a very relative to other people comparative view of our own trauma. So what happens is if I lose a friend in combat, I will dismiss my own grief process by saying, well, I wasn't as close to him as some of those other people, or I wasn't as close to him as his family. So now I have no right to grieve in the same way they are, right? And we see this happen all the time is people decide, well, I'm not qualified to have these feelings. But here's the simple fact is death can affect us in very different ways. And a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in many years, we lost in an aviation accident and it affected me deeply. And at that time, I did exactly what I'm talking about. I said, well, I have no right to be sad because I hadn't talked to this guy in a long time and I should have been a better friend to him. And I started beating myself up and I never really honored the grief that was, hey, this was a person that was a good friend of mine at a certain point in my life. And I'm allowed to feel deeply sad about what happened and grieve in my own way and honor that grief. And we tend to repress emotions. And, and that's where a lot of this, this stuff comes from. So I think having a practice like meditation or getting in touch with our emotions I've done a lot of work with Philip McKernan, who, who is a, just a wonderful mm -hmm. uh, guide and, and, and coach for uh, people to get in touch with their emotions. This is all stuff that I learned post-military that would have been wildly helpful had I known 
back then in order to, to better process those things. So what I would just say to anyone who's experiencing grief or sadness or anxiety is to honor those emotions. One of the first things you can do is say, hey, where in my body am I feeling this emotion? First of all, uh, Philip shared an, an amazing meditation. We can maybe put in the show notes, statute if you want to, mm-hmm. but yeah, awesome. um, it starts with, what am I actually feeling right now? What is the emotion that I'm feeling? And then second, the next question is, where am I feeling that in my body? And then going into starting to ask, okay, how old is this emotion? If this is grief that I'm feeling right now, is it actually tied to the thing that I think it is? Is it actually tied to this acquaintance that maybe I wasn't that close to, or am I feeling it coming up from a past event that I've never dealt with? And then finally, what are you trying to teach me? What can I learn from this emotion that's coming up in my body? Now I've paid attention to it. Now I'm in a relationship with it. Now I'm having a conversation with it. And that actually helps us deal with these emotions rather than suppressing them, repressing them and putting the best foot forward, because that's actually not honoring to ourselves and it's going to cause more long-term damage. That's definitely true with suppression or repression of dealing with death. And death is certainly a strange beast, any sort of grief or, or tragedy that one experiences. And the compartmentalization that Mike talked about is certainly something you have to do in combat. There are times where you need to be able to do your objectives. And then afterwards, you can think about the the ramifications of it or personally process or digest what occurred. One thing that I, I like to look at with grief is trying to look at it from the lens of, no, I'm not going to repress this. I'm not going to emotionally distance myself from it, but I'm going to try to understand it in the best context I can so that I'm able to process it as maybe not speedily or as efficiently, but as effectively as possible. And that's easy to say when it hasn't happened to you and you're looking at it from something else. Like if someone had the loss of a loved one, I've been in situations where you know, a relative passes away or a friend and I'm, I'm trying to rely upon the, the lessons from stoicism and going, okay, tempest figure to memento mori, you know, time flies, remember death where this is the great equalizer of all man. Marcus Aurelius said that Alexander the Great and his mule driver both died, and the same thing happened to both. They were dissolved alike into atoms or absorbed into the life force of the universe or whichever theological or philosophical lens you, you wish to view life in the afterlife. But there's something to be said about trying to look at things as this has occurred, I am going to grieve, but I must take my grief and continue move through it at whatever pace that is as effectively as I can to be able to continue to live my life and do that in accordance with what my my values or virtues are and be the best person I can be. And and when you're experiencing that grief, that was something that helped me when, when I've lost uh, loved ones or family members. Is This was a, a very honored person in the family or a, a trusted friend. What would that friend or loved one want me to do now? And it's, of course, honor his or her life in the best way possible by living mine in, in the best way I can. Thank you guys for sharing that. I know that, that was sort of like a hard one. And, and Mike, thank you for also connecting me with Jeff. I'm, I'm looking forward to having him on because he's got a lot of resources around that. I know we're sort of coming on time. Um, there, there's so much more about your guys' early backgrounds that we didn't get to cover. Both of you are welcome anytime again for, for another episode. And one of the things I've seen that, that sort of like looking for the silver lining in this has been sort of like seeing a lot of like community efforts come come together, right? Like people just helping their neighbor. Uh, one of our friends, Ron, started this thing called IntelliHelp, where neighbors are sort of help neighbors are helping each other and giving to each other. So um, 
for people listening, I guess like, like as people are going through this, sort of what would be your, both your guys' like parting words and, and just, yeah, like ways people can go through this and, and still keep joy and happiness and, and go through this with as much grace as we can. Yeah, I think for me, the thing that I would talk about here is radical militant gratitude. The research is starting to come out that really the key factor for living a fulfilled life is radical deep gratitude. And the only way to get to that radical gratitude is presence. We suffer only in the past and the future. Suffering is actually impossible in a present, completely present moment. And so the more we practice a process of being completely present, not worrying about the future, not beating ourselves up for the past, having a deeply self-compassionate present moment allows us to feel that radical gratitude. And, and there is so much to be grateful for in this scenario, especially if you're in a place of privilege. You know, and so when you're in a place of tragedy and grief, it can be hard to find the gratitude, but, but research is starting to show that that is the way to process those things, is finding what you can be grateful for. And so I would just really encourage everyone listening to think about your own gratitude practice and how you can deepen that during this time, because that is, you know, the nature of our own mind, as I said earlier, is the only thing we can control in this scenario. We can't control how this virus spreads. We can enact measures to battle it. But the only thing you truly have control over is your own mind. And so trying to find some kind of gratitude practice, I think, is the cornerstone of, of surviving this and, and actually thriving during this time. I love that. I think gratitude is, is a massive piece. And as people are, are suffering through boredom or, as mentioned earlier, finding out they're, they didn't enjoy their company with their partners as much as they thought they would, or they're going, hey, there's all these things I used to love to do, and now I can't do it anymore. Like, I love, I'm a huge foodie, so I like going to nice restaurants, having sushi, maybe playing laser tag with friends, uh, wearing suits while playing laser tag, like in the TV series, How I Met Your Mother. And I, I can't do that now, but what can I do? I, I may not be able to go to the gym, but I can do a workout at home. I may not be able to go to the Civil Air Patrol meetings and help train the high school students, middle school students, how to march around. But I can get on a Zoom chat and still talk to them about mm -hmm. leadership and aerospace. And with that, while you're going through, and I, I try to fill all my time with, with ways that I can continue to improve or to help others, but we're only human. And we're going to have points during the, our quarantines or whether you're, you're still working every day where you're going to be down because your life is different than it had been. And you are seeing suffering around you or, or participating in it by or being subjected to it rather. And you, you just have to try to figure out a way to adapt. For example, and this is really ridiculous, but a, a lot of people enjoy sports. That's their form of escapism. They see the competition, the enjoyment, the entertainment in it. There's not a whole lot of sports around. Like I love Formula One, but I can't go to a Grand Prix during the quarantine and the, mm -hmm. they're not racing. Well, what else is out there? There's this ridiculous thing called Marbula One that's put on by Jelly's Marble Runs. And it's a high production value track made of like dominoes and, and little road pieces where marbles go around in a like Formula One style track while this announcer gives the most serious but hilarious voiceover possible. And they had live viewings of this. And a couple buddies from the Air Force, we decided to get really into this because there's no sports going on. So we'd be live chatting. We'd choose our teams like, oh, yeah, I'm a fan of the Savage Speeders or like myself. I'm a Rojo Rollers guy. They remind me of Alfa Romeo. They didn't finish too well in the season. But there's places to find joy in, in doing something. And for me, that might be a Skype call with an extended family member that I haven't talked to in a while. Or it might just be a, a form of entertainment and something that I hadn't thought about before. 
but we're, we're going to make it through this pandemic. We're going to make it through crises in the future, and there will be struggles, and it is, is going to certainly be involved suffering for, for many individuals, and it is not going to be looked upon favorably, uh, even hopefully by the, the people of privilege that Mike had mentioned that are looking at this as some form of being on an arc during the deluge. Now, this is a, a very unfortunate thing that that we as a human people are, are currently experiencing, but we will push through it and we will, we'll make it. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Like one thing that's been helpful for me is just sort of like been thinking about how like the human race has just survived so much more and that, yeah, we will get through that. So last question. Um, and then we'll have all of this linked up. Um, if people want to find out more, um, one, like any more parting words and also where can people find you online? Yeah, I think that covers you know everything that uh, that I speak about, and, and uh, you know I really appreciate you having us both on. It's it's cool always to uh, get another perspective from from a military guy. That, that life seems uh, like a long time ago to me, but uh, at the same time was you know very precious in my in my formative years. And uh, it's fun to kind of reminisce on all the old aviation days. So thanks for the trip down memory lane. And, and as far as getting in touch, I don't have a huge social media presence, not really my jam, but I'm on LinkedIn at Mike Brown Actual. There are a ton of Mike Browns so Mike <laughs> Brown Actual on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to sign up for a newsletter, I'm actually launching a podcast here, taking this time to learn a new skill. So ripplestudios.io, you can go enter your email and, uh, and get on the mailing list for updates about my new podcast. That's awesome. Uh, Sasha, mm-hmm. I really appreciate you having me on the show. I, I thought you promoted some very stimulating conversation. And Mike, uh, it was an honor to, to get to listen to you on here and share your experiences. So I, I definitely gained a lot from that. If folks are interested in finding out more about what I'm doing, uh, they can Check me out on Instagram. I, I kind of begrudgingly made an Instagram not too long ago after some some mentor suggested. If you're a millennial and you don't have one, then you you barely exist. I was like, ow, ouch. Okay, well, now I guess I'll cave the peer pressure on this one time. So it's currently at Julian R. Gluck. There's a surprising number of Julian Glucks in the world. That was news to me, thanks to social media. So you go in there and everything from bad puns to photos from adventures in Mongolia and everywhere else, aviation pictures, musings on philosophy, plenty of stuff to be bored by or to cringe by for in the case of puns. The website currently got julianglock.com net org. Uh, however, there's nothing they currently link to. They all just go to my LinkedIn because I haven't <laughs> had the time to set up a website. So you can easily find my LinkedIn that way. And, th- and that's about it. I, I appreciate being on here. I've got Plenty of lessons I can take from from you gentlemen and many others out there. I'm, I'm constantly trying to become a better person because there's a thousand ways I can improve. And uh, I look forward to talking to you all again in the future. Yeah, thank, thank you both for, for coming on together. I, like I said, this was sort of an experiment. I messaged both of you last week. I was like, can you guys do this? And, and, and honestly, like even going through this, I realized it was as much for me as uh, everyone else. And hopefully people find this as useful as I did. And thank you both. Same. Thank Thanks, you. brother. Hey, it's Sachet again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.